Welcome to Bonafide HPP, a podcast designed to educate and support the patients and caregivers of those affected by hypophosphatasia. As a mother and caregiver, host Deborah Fowler has discussions about this rare genetic bone disease with people from around the world. Join Deborah now as she speaks with this week's guest. Today's topic is one that is of great interest to the soft bones community, and that's the topic of pain management. I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. Chris Sobe, who's an associate professor of clinical anesthesiology and pain management at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome, Dr. Sobe. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, well, I mean, you are in high demand in terms of your area of expertise, you know, but I wanted to just take a step back and just ask you how you became knowledgeable about HPP. Can you just tell me the story about how your, your pain management experience and HPP intersected? Sure. Uh, it was, um, I wouldn't, maybe not random, but it, it was not sought out by me. It was interesting. So we have obviously a Vanderbilt. It's a you know, nationally, uh, nationally known university with lots of excellent physicians who do a lot of great research. And one of those is Dr. Catherine Tahir through the mm-hmm. endocrinology. Um, yeah, I'm sure most of your, or many of your your uh, constituents are, are aware of who she is and her impact on hypophosphatasia research. So she manages many of these patients and has realized over time that they need specialized care in pain medicine. And that can be kind of nuanced um, for a lot of reasons, um, from oversight, from um, things like the, the state boards and DEA, and just trying to optimize patients so they're not, um, we're not contributing to any of uh, complications from the treatment. So she reached out to me, um, I guess it was about four or five years ago, and was said, do you feel comfortable seeing some of these patients? And at that point, I didn't know much about metabolic bone disorders you know, did some research and looked into it myself, saw what was out there. And uh, we've kind of had a referral stream um, back and forth with, uh, with these uh, individuals and trying to get them some, some relief. That's great. That's really great. I, I think that, uh, you know, finding somebody who takes the time to educate themselves on our disease is something that, you know, I'm super grateful for. And I know I speak on behalf of the patients when I, when I say that, because that, you know, there's just, when you're dealing with rare diseases, such a learning curve. And a lot of times the patients, you know, know as much or in some cases more than the physicians that they're seeing about their own condition. So, you know, that, that time that you take to, to learn about HPP is really appreciated. Um, one of the questions that, that we see quite often, a lot of patients typically rely on NSAIDs for, their pain management, it becomes almost a a routine way of of dealing with pain that comes with HPP. What other pain medications can you suggest for the management of day-to-day pain for hypophosphatasia? Sure. You know, know, I think that NSAIDs are the mainstay for for treatment, and and that's because most of the data that is available for this patient population is is based around NSAIDs. as, as the primary. So that's that's pretty normal question that we get. So a lot of the de- decisions on how to provide medication management for pain specifically is, is, is the pain that's being experienced an acute type of pain or is it a chronic type of pain? And 
if it's chronic and depending on what type of, of pain they're experiencing, we can help tailor the regimen to, to be best for the patient and r reduce the risk of side effects. So what we try to do with NSAIDs actually is recommend them more on an as needed basis for acute issues, acute flares. Um, and in acute can be once a week, twice a week, once a month, it can be, there's a, a variable amount of time, whereas chronic is typically something that patients are dealing with on, a, on an everyday basis. They have a baseline degree of discomfort that they have to work through and modulate in order to, to stay active. So if you are requiring NSAIDs um, more regularly, we would recommend adding actually a baseline scheduled medication that you take daily. And that can help reduce your basal amount of pain from something that is uncomfortable and debilitating to something that might be uh, manageable to, to deal with. And then, then we reserve the NSAIDs more on an acute type of uh, scenario. So getting into those medications, you know, things that we regularly use are um, anti-neuropathic medications or anti-convulsants, things like gabapentin or, or pregabalin. Um, there are a couple classes of antidepressant medications. Um, that are called uh, serotonin, norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. The, the classic ones we talk about the most are duloxetine, other, or in the proprietary name is Zimbalta. Um, the other two in that class are venilofaxine and Savella or milnasopran. Okay. Um, and, and those medications, although they're labeled as antidepressants, and that can sometimes uh, be off-putting to certain patients because I'm not really depressed, I'm, I'm just right. trying to treat my pain. Right. That's that's not the the, me the the mechanism of action is actually treating pain. It's not it's not treating well. It can also help with depression, but it, that's not the purpose of why, uh, why we're prescribing medications. So they have dual uses. Um, there are certain types of local anesthetics that can work. You know, lidocaine comes in patch formation if it's something that's in a specific location that you use. There's also one called um, I'm sorry. Um, there's an NMDA antagonist called memantine. That can be very helpful um, for certain types of neuropathic pain. It's also an off-label use for pain, but but um, blocking that specific receptor also can reduce uh, baseline nerve nerve pain. And we've seen that uh, work out in a couple different um, studies in myofascial pain. Um, and I think um, something that's gaining a little bit more traction now is is uh, oral or intranasal ketamine, uh, which works the same way. It just needs to be dosed correctly so the side effect profile doesn't um, cause cause issues. And then lastly, the, the two last things, and we always talk about steroids being an option for inflammatory mediating pain or, or bone mediating pain. There, there are a lot of issues with taking chronic steroids that need to be mitigated. Um, so it's not a great option um, if taken chronically, but sometimes it's necessary. Um, and then we always, um, you know, the, the, the popular thing now is to dip into to talking about uh, cannabinoids and CBD now that it's become a little bit more mainstream, maybe not on the federally uh, distributed level, but, but state by state, it's becoming a lot more accessible. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned a couple of things I wanted to ask about. One is, you know, a, a lot of these medications uh, people may not be familiar with. So what's the best kind of way to bring it up to your doctor? I know sometimes uh, patients making recommendations to the doctor isn't exactly well received, um, but what is your kind of uh, approach and, and recommendation, you know, advice to patients who hear some of these medications, they're scribbling them down. 
how do they go about having that conversation with their physician? Yeah, that's a great question. Cause I think one thing the, the, in regards to pain medication specifically is there's that underlying uh, feeling from both the patient and provider that they don't want to get into the, the more um, nefarious acting ones that we always talk about, like opiates. And, Absolutely. you know, that's, it's, it's, a, yep. it's a hot button topic and we, and it has to be broached. And I think that you have to have the right provider and you have to have the right means of, of communicating this. I think that when you know you're going into those type of conversations, you're saying, I don't, I'm not recommending this medication per se, but you know, I, I've heard about it. I was wanting to know your thoughts on it, or if you don't have any knowledge of it, could we look into maybe it being an option because, you know, it was recommended to me by X, Y, Z. Don't, don't say I need to be on the medication. That's not, you're right. That isn't typically well-received, but I think what, um, what most providers are trying to do is, is get patients to be functional without, with a sustainable uh, regimen. And, and a lot of times the expectation is, um, well, they just want pain medication because they actually don't really want to be out of pain, but they might be wanting it for other um, social purposes. But that's not, that's not what most patients, you know, 99% of patients who come in and, and we're having this conversations don't have that um, mindset. And, and I think that doctors are understanding that more and more um, that it, everyone's just trying to do the best they can with the, the tools that they have in their metaphorical tool, toolbox. Um, so I would just be um, open to what the doctors have to say about it. You know, mm -hmm. ask it as more like a question than as a recommendation. Um, ask about trying to learn more about what, what the options are and, and why they may or may not be good for you. Um, and try to, you know, try to make sure that the, the, the goal is, is focused more on your functional capacity rather than acquiring a certain prescription. That's, that's great advice. And I'm glad you mentioned the part about the antidepressants and having the, the pain mechanism, because uh, that's actually happened to me with my son. I remember when we went in and he was having some pain and they, they prescribed him an antidepressant. And I said, well, wait a minute, he's, he's not depressed you know, to your point. And uh, they explained exactly what you explained to me. And I think that that's an important uh, mindset hurdle that you have to get over to realize that there's, there's other applications for these antidepressants. Yes. Yes. And the thing is, you know, when you have a diagnosis like hypophosphatasia, you're going to have instances throughout your life where you're going to need pain medication that's stronger. you you might have a, a, a fracture that is just very painful or Absolutely. worsening surgery um, something yeah right. surgery worsening stenosis um you know that hasn't been operated on yet or or um you know significant arthritic changes that occur and that's so you're gonna need you're gonna have to have treatment that fluctuates based on your scenario so the understanding should be both by patients and providers is that things are going to change as you move through uh your life and you'll need more sometimes you'll once you recover from such an instance, you need to come back down because the last thing you want to do is continue to bombard your, your body with things that might be detrimental to uh, your ability to stay functional long-term. Sure. You know, we, we started talking about NSAIDs and I think that you, know, you, you um, made a good point that they shouldn't necessarily become uh, a daily maintenance 
uh, choice for managing pain. Is there kind of a bar you would put around that? You know, a lot of times we see questions about, you know, I've been taking NSAIDs for quite a bit. Am I taking too much? Um, there's also been some studies out there that connect um, NSAIDs to potentially inhibiting bone growth uh, and potential kidney complications, which are obviously issues in HPP. Um, is there kind of any bar there or any kind of advice you would recommend on how much NSAIDs could be too much? Yes, and, and um, the answer isn't a specific dose or a specific duration. It's, it's nuanced to the patient in their um, scenario. So, you know, when we're on, when patients are on NSAIDs on a regular basis, and I don't mean just scheduled every day, but, you know, if they're, they've been taking NSAIDs, just like you said, for, for months or years, they, there needs to be some evaluation about, um, you know, from either laboratory findings or, or other um, investigations to make sure you're not causing more issues. Cause what you're, the, the, the main, side effects that we are concerned about with Winston NSAIDs are kidney complications, um, specifically reduced kidney function, um, GI effects, which occurs in about 30 to 40% of regular users of NSAIDs. And that typically, we don't usually just do uh, endoscopies to, to determine that. Uh, we base it on your symptoms. And then if you need to have a referral to GI, we can go ahead and do that. Um, platelet, inhibition, so it can increase your risk of bleeding. Um, and it depends on what other medications you're on and what type of NSAID you're on for that as well. And then lastly, like you said, uh, there's a, always a concern for, for bone growth. Now, uh, I'm gonna go through these uh, kind of sequentially here. I, let's say starting with GI effects, if you're having heartburn or you're having any um, blackness in your stools, you definitely need to be disclosing that to you're a physician because okay. you, you might need to be on an H2 blocker like ranitidine or um, um, something in that class or a proton pump inhibitor like Prilosec or, or Nexium because um, those can help reduce uh, the acidity in, in your stomach and, and reduce those effects. But you, you don't want to cause things like gastritis or, or even worse, an ulceration because mm. of your NSAID use. Mm -hmm. And in you know, that has happened even in my practice, patients typically that are overtaking the medication outside of what has been prescribed and they can get comp major complications. And unfortunately that kind of takes insets off the table if those happen going forward, um, yep. which is even more of an issue. Um, now, in terms of the kidney effects, the way, reason why that happens is because the whole purpose of insets is to reduce inflammation and they, they reduce something called prostaglandins. And prostaglandins are part of, the mitigator of renal blood flow. So when you are reducing those things, you're actually reducing renal blood flow. And that, and when the, you're kind of starving the kidneys from what they, they need in terms of oxygenation, and that's what causes death of those neuro, uh, nephrons. So what you want to do is, is keep an eye on patients' renal function. And we usually do that with something called the GFR or, or creatinine clearance. Those are the, the two main uh, laboratories we're looking at. So I'm usually looking at that at least annually, depending on your age group, your primary care doctor might already be looking at that. Um, that's a pretty regular lab that we, that is, is given out. But if you start elevating, we, we want to pull back the inside use and, and mitigate it that way. Um, so, and then platelet dysfunction more has to do with what is your other risk? You know, are you on an anticoagulant because you have AFib? Are you on, um, other medications that can cause, um, risk for bleeding, or do you have a fall risk? Those are things to, to consider as well. 
Um, and then lastly, the, the point on, on bone growth. So it's, this is still a debated issue. Uh, this is not something that we have really great um, evidence on it yet, but what, what most studies have shown that in the laboratory studies that there is definitely some effect on bone growth in the intermediate stage when you're on in or when insects are being involved, it doesn't play out as um, clinically relevant in when you're done when this is done in patients. So, you know, even surgeons they used to think, oh, if they have spine surgery, if they have knee replacements or whatnot, they can't have insects afterwards because those are surgeries where you need a lot of excess of bone growth afterwards to get stabilization. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But actually looking at the results for those in patients that were on them and weren't, were not on, the, it didn't show that there was a high degree of, of um, implant uh, mobility and whatnot. So it actually um, didn't really do that. But what the more recent meta-analysis say, even if you take insets for two weeks after you have a fracture, it doesn't really reduce, or I'm sorry, increase the risk of, of delayed healing. If you take it longer than that, it can to a, to a small degree, um, but it, it's not, um, we usually try to reserve it to the first two weeks after a fracture. Okay, all right. It's great information. Um, so I, I don't know if, if uh, you're aware, but we have a, a community called HPP and Me, which is a, specifically for patients. It's on the back end of our website. And we had asked patients for um, you know, questions to help inform the content of this webinar. And one of them that came up, which I thought was a really good one was, you know, how do we know when we treat, how do we know, or how do we treat pain that could be caused by a common injury, you know, for example, tennis elbow um, versus something that could be caused by calcium deposits in the elbow, you know, because of HPP. Uh, you go to the doctor, you're complaining about the pain, you know, somebody who doesn't know about HPP could write it off as, you know, tennis elbow when really it could be something, another root cause. So you know, the question came up about, um, is there a certain type of doctor that, that patients should be seeing when they have some of these issues of pain and really getting to the root cause? And if you had any recommendations around um, treating pain where we may not know what the root cause is, should we take that extra step and try to get the root cause or what's, what's your advice around that kind of a scenario? Um, I think that it, it depends a lot on, on the context. Again, the, it, these, these things are going to happen um, a lot with, with patients that have HPP or, or really any, um, you know, all encompassing systemic disease process, because you, you are going to be at more risk for less than normal things we call we call them zebras in the medical uh community uh actually yeah. causing issues than common things you know the, the term is always exactly. co well common things being common this is probably you know a bursitis from tennis elbow something like that mm -hmm. yeah. but it is true in hpp that you know you might have some some calcium deposits or bone spurring that is occurring or, or a micro fracture in that same area so you know you're going to require an x-ray um, to really make that clear diagnosis. Whereas in, you know, if I went to the doctor and I complained about probably the same type of symptoms, it's going to be, well, why don't you do these common things that you would do to reduce a bursitis type of flare and it'll probably get better. And if that doesn't work, then we get an x-ray. You're going to be more likely to get a more advanced workup earlier if you have HPP or, or something similar to that. Okay. Um, so, you know, 
is that worth requesting when you go in? That's hard to say. I think, um, I think it's worth reminding uh, physicians, whether it be your normal primary care doctor or a specialist, that you do have uh, a metabolic bone disorder, and that um, it might it might be things outside of the norm because of that. And so that will require. And they're not going to say, "Oh, well, you need to get these advanced or." Um, painful uh, treatments uh, before they, they figure it out, but you, know, you don't need an MRI of your elbow. You need, you need to get an x-ray first. Uh, that's, there's, there's normal steps that you have to do. And sometimes that has to do with getting them, them reimbursed by insurance. And sometimes it's a exposure to, to risk uh, mm-hmm. for the patient. So we, we have, to, you know, you shouldn't be going in asking for an MRI or a CT scan anytime you have a pain complaint, because mm-hmm. that's not necessarily indicated, but over, um, overdoing it. Yeah. 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 I mean, you're, you're, when you have something like HPP, you're going to be a, a high utilizer of healthcare um, services regardless. Um, so it, it's still important to try to mi- not, I wouldn't say minimize, but modulate it as um, efficiently as possible. Um, I, I still think the most common type of physician you should be seeing though in this scenario are uh, orthopedic specialists and they can be either surgical or non-surgical. A lot of, do- a lot of, pa- sorry, a lot of patients think that, you know, I got referred to an orthopedic surgeon, but I don't want surgery. The, the fact is, is that orthopedic surgeons only see only about, you know, 25 to 30% of the patients they see are surgical patients. They're seeing a lot of non-surgical patients. So just because you're seeing a surgeon doesn't mean that you're going to get surgery. Or you're going to have surgery or that you're a candidate. For surgery. Yeah, exactly. And so like the sports ortho uh, community is usually pretty good at, at uh, differentiating those type of things. Um, and again, you don't have to be athletic to see a sports orthopedic doctor. You can be, um, you know, just a normal uh, active person in that sense. Um, and, or you could see someone like myself who's uh, in pain medicine or, uh, someone that's a physiatrist who's is trained in rehab or physical medicine and rehab. Those are all good individuals to, to kind of start with if your primary doctor or whatnot thinks that you need a further um, evaluation. No, that's, that's a great point too, because I think just even from a mere convenience standpoint, if you go to your, your, your traditional doctor, they're not going to necessarily have the x-rays right there in their offices where these orthopedists um, and some of these uh, surgeons or sports medicine doctors will, and they can just you know quickly send you down the hall for an X-ray. It's kind of protocol in many many cases with probably the way they treat patients. Exactly, and that, and that's what we you know we have I have patients even yesterday I came in and we suspected a rib fracture. We sent her right over for X-ray, and it, it's it's easy for them. It's easy for us to make that diagnosis quickly, and then in, institute the treatment. So I do think that's a it's worth seeing a specialist in that sense. That's great advice. Uh, I'm going to go back to you mentioned ketamine earlier. Do you have any experience with HPP patients using low dose naltrexone um, or ketamine infusions for pain management, inflammation, or also for anxiety and depression? Sure. I, I actually don't have any experience with this with HPP because they're fairly new uh, treatments, but I do have experience with them in treating other type of pain. And I think that the, in, in terms of extrapolating this to an, the HPP population, I think that we're just going to have to do a little bit more um, research on this. The, the fact is, is that there's, there's good data to support the use 
um, of both. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about um, low-dose naltrexone first. So, you know, naltrexone is, is um, an opiate antagonist. So it's the opposite of things like oxycodone or morphine or uh, hydrocodone, et cetera. Um, and it's used at about the 10th of a treatment dose that you would, it's used, it was used a lot and still is for addiction. And, and low-dose naltrexone is about a 10th of that dose that people use for addiction. Um, again, you know, this can be a touchy subject when you're prescribing something that has uh, an indication that uh, can be, uh, has some stigma around it, but you're actually, again, using it for a completely different, very viable issue. And and that is for pain. It, it's been shown to dem- reduce symptom severity in patients with things like fibromyalgia, myofascial pain syndrome, Crohn's disease, multiple sclerosis, and com- uh, complex regional pain syndrome. Um, and there's good promise in, in some of the studies. But that being said, it's still very early. You know, a lot of these studies have low sample sizes. They haven't been replicated yet in the, in the data. So there's still a lot of work to do. And that'll come um, as, as things progress. Um, the and I'm imagining it's going to be, I actually you know, preparing for, for this podcast was thinking of my own research uh, opportunities to utilize this in, in the bone metabolic bone disorder uh, population. So I think that you're going to see that down the line here. Um, and the, the reason why this works for her pain is not because of, of the anti-opiate effect, but it actually uh, is, it has a anti-inflammatory effect as well mm-hmm. acting on mm-hmm. some, yeah, it works on something called the microglia in the nervous system and it reduces, uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines that can, that can affect pain. So I think that, um, it would still be termed deemed experimental in, um, HPP. Uh, but it, um, I think it, the risk associated with trialing low-dose non is very small and, um, and often, not not um, something that we can are very concerned about compared to other pain uh, modulators. So, and then uh, moving on to ketamine. Mm-hmm. So, say, yeah. yeah. So, ketamine um, is admin- It's been known to be administered via infusions for for quite some time. Um, it's used in the operating room. It's deemed an anesthetic because it it alters your sens- sensations and um, ability to to function at certain doses but it's also a very potent analgesic and it's been growing more and more popular both in the operating room, in the ICU, and now in uh, the clinic and outpatient space because it's an alternative to things like opiates that we know can be more, um, have more issues long-term, um, whether it be dependence or, or just side effects from the medication itself. The, the, the issue that we run into with ketamine are, are kind of two things. The first is the administration or the, the data that we have behind um, its administration is mostly in infusions. And obviously when you get infusions, it's, it's kind of a bigger ordeal. Um, you have to get an IV, you have to stay in a certain location for a certain amount of time. Some of the, the data behind the infusions is really high doses where you're, you can be very altered and you require um, kind of anesthetic um, complements to make it tolerable which is not a realistic treatment for a lot of patients trying to to get their pain under control. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the trials only show one to two weeks of improvement after these infusions. So how replicable is that in in the population? The other thing is it's not usually covered by insurance to a great degree or if at all. 
And so a lot of people, patients are, are doing cash payments for this and, and that can be very costly. Mm. Um, but that being said, there, the FDA has already uh, approved nasal ketamine for uh, outpatient use for depression. And we use it for neuropathic pain on a regular basis or intractable pain. And we have some good data that's coming out um, in that sense. It, it Again, just like naltrexone has not been studied specifically in um, patients who have HPP, but it has uh, the promise to be in the future. And I definitely think it is a good alternative to, to opiates because I mean, the fact is, is that things like ketamine, they don't, it doesn't cause morbidity and mortality, whereas opiates have significantly altered uh, the face of, of the United States and, and mm -hmm. uh, the world actually in, yeah. in um, the issues. Yeah. Well, so, so I, I know that so many people are going to find all of this so interesting. There's going to be a lot of discussions happening with those doctors. I'm glad we touched on that a little earlier. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so there's one final question I want to get to, and that's uh, about gabapentin. You know, is it known to cause short-term memory loss if used long-term? Um, it really is only known to cause memory issues or cognitive dysfunction while you're taking the medication. Okay. The, the ex extrapolating that out to where you've taken it for years and years. And, um, there's no, I don't, as far as I'm aware in terms of the research and the literature that we look up, discontinuing the medication at a certain time, you don't have less cognitive function than you would if you were not on that medication, ruling out other causes. I mean, you're going to have memory issues as you age, irregardless. It's an, it's an unfortunate part of, of how, uh, we were created and, and how our bodies uh, work moving forward. But um, there, there really wasn't any statistically significant difference in the memory abilities of patients that had been on gamapen and then stopped it versus people that had not been on it at all. Now, when you're on the medication, that's a different story. It, the, so the purpose of gab or how gabapentin works is it works on calcium channels and at, on neurons. And the purpose is to kind of reduce the hyperactive neurons and that can be for uh, pain and what we're talking about, or it actually is used for seizures and as well, and can reduce abnormal excitement in the brain and reduce seizures for that point. So what you have to remember is when you're reducing uh, hyperactive neurons and their functioning, because your goal is to reduce pain, your brain is a large conglomerate of hyperactive neurons as well. And that's one of the issues about taking pills or things that go systemically throughout your bodies. You're not isolating, you know, your, your arm pain, or you're not isolating your back pain or whatnot. It, it distributes um, with indifference <laughs> throughout your body. And so that's why you can have, you know, some short-term memory issues or some dizziness or some balance issues because it is reducing those neurons as well as the pain fibers. So um, but typically when you stop those, your, your body recovers pretty quickly. Okay. Yeah. I would say that one, one, uh, note of caution, if you do, if you are on gabapentin mm -hmm. and you're depending on your dose, if you're having any side effects, you do want to taper down off of that. It's not something you want to go Push from through. a full, yeah. You don't want to go from a full dose to zero. You actually can't actually induce some seizures because that causes some excitability in the brain. Mm -hmm. And so I would say if, if, you're having issues, contact the prescribing provider before you make decisions to, to discontinue. Okay. 
Gosh, that's a super important. Okay. Well, Dr. Sobi, this has been incredibly helpful. Thank you for sharing your experience, your expertise with us today. And we look forward to continuing the discussion in the future. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. And that's it for today's podcast. You've been listening to Bonafide HPP, a podcast of Softbones, the U.S. Hypophosphatasia Foundation. Join Deborah and other patients on HPP and me, where they continue discussing questions around hypophosphatasia and submit questions for the next podcast. Go to softbones.org and click on community, then HPP and me for instructions on how to sign up. This podcast and the intro music was produced and edited by me, Patrick Jaguer.